So we're going to jump in today to uh, Luke chapter 11. We have been uh, typically, as I've said each week, typically here at Calvary, we, we teach on, uh, we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll teach through that. But what we've done is we've taken a few weeks to talk about the subject that's commonly referred to as spiritual warfare. And uh, that is that there are malevolent forces in the unseen realm who do things that have an effect in the physical or the material realm. And so we've been talking about the reality of this battle. And if you've ever heard somebody say, man, I have just been under attack, under, you know, under satanic attack, uh, I can tell you that for the past seven weeks, as, as we've been going through this for, for Cheryl and I, that, that we have never experienced uh, so many things taking place that, that have no explanation that, that would appear to be from that, that unseen realm attacking. What it's done is it's, it's brought home uh, two things for us. First of all, it's made us once again painfully aware of how real this is. And then the other side of it is how important it is for us to stop and talk about it because it's something that we all need to know about. Maybe one day I'll be able to, to stop and share some of the stories but uh, as, as, uh, as uh, we wrap this up today, and next week we're going to jump back into a, a book study. Next week we'll begin, I, I think, uh, the book of Colossians. But this week we're going to look at a principle that's, that's important for all of us. Jesus is going to give us the principle and an example. It's one of those principles that's often overlooked. And, uh, and as we share this today, I want to share it from the perspective, not so much as being the pastor of the church, but as a dad who's been very blessed to, to be, be married to Cheryl for, for 20 years now, and for God who's blessed us with these 12 kids and all that he's done in our life. And, and so I'm going to share this today from the perspective more of being a dad than the pastor. And so I'm going to share a few verses today. I can't share everything, but I'm going to share hopefully enough to get the, the, the point across and uh, hopefully to share what I've come to know, but not to share it in a way that's too wacky, in a way that we can, we can all embrace it. But there is much more to, to life than what we can see. There is much more going on in the unseen realm than, uh, than we actually realize. And we realize this in other areas of our life. For instance, we all know that when we turn on a radio, there's something going on in the unseen realm that we can't see, but it manifests by coming through a sound in our radio. We all get that. Years ago at our house, we had one of those microwaves that sat on a cart in our kitchen, and so we'd move the cart around as we needed to. And this one time we were, we were uh, kind of uh, reorganizing our kitchen, and we also had in our kitchen, we had one of those fish that's in a bowl, a betta fish. You ever seen those things? They're really pretty. And uh, so we, we, we didn't think about it, but what we did is we were rearranging, we stuck the thing on the top of the microwave. And... Uh, just went on with our business, but the next day the fish was dead. And uh, what we realized is, is that something was going on beyond what we could see, and it cooked the fish. And uh, we also realized it was probably time to get uh, a new microwave. So, um, so there are things that go on in the unseen that we can't see. Spiritually speaking, it's equally true, if not more true, that there are, there are forces in the unseen, the things that they do have an effect in the physical or the material realm. And so today, Jesus is going to articulate uh, the unseen and how it affects the life of the believer and, and how the, that, that entity wants to get into our lives and what he wants to do. I'm going to pick it up in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Here's what it says. 
It says, as he was casting out a demon, it was mute, and it was mute, and the demon had gone out, and the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. So as our story begins today, it begins with Jesus casting out a a demon. Jesus believes in demonic possession, and it's not something that he ignored, it's just something that he dealt with. He just dealt with it. And the crowd is amazed, and the reason why the crowd is amazed is that the crowd would know this person because he's been living among them. They saw his life, and so there's a very dramatic change. It's also important to, as we get into this, to realize that in this case, the demonic possession is manifesting itself in what you and I would call a a medical condition. He can't speak. When Matthew tells the story, he can't hear or speak. And so because the source, Jesus tells us, or, or, or illuminates for us is spiritual, all the medical, all the treatment, all the therapy, nothing's going to work until the spiritual is dealt with. We've seen this before. As a matter of fact, there was another time we've looked at a few weeks ago there in your outline. It's actually in Luke 13. It says, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness, and I've underlined it says caused by a spirit. You might want to underline that. And she was bent double. That's how it was manifesting itself and could not straighten up. The story goes on and Jesus says, and this woman whom Satan has bound, underline the word bound, for 18 long years. And you can read the story later on. But what, what's happening here is Jesus is attributing what's happening in the physical realm to something that's taking place in the spiritual realm. So something's going on in the unseen realm, but the manifestation is in the, in the physical realm. That word bound is also the same word as bind, and I put the definition there, just the word is deo, uh, and it just means to bind, uh, literally, figuratively, to be in bonds, to knit, to tie in the wine. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see why that's important as we travel through. But go ahead and write this down. As, as we read from cover to cover, one of the things that we see in this lady's life and in the life of this man who was healed is that Satan's desire is to have us bound up in such a way that it keeps us from living effectively. I think you'd agree if you're bent over, bent double for 18 years, you would say that you haven't been able to live effectively. Is that on your outline, by the way? Yeah. Okay. All right. So in verse 14, uh, Jesus casts out a demon. Verse 15, it says, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Other to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So he's just cast out this demon in this life of this man that everybody knows. And then now they said, well, we want a sign from heaven. That is a sign from heaven. And the point is that those who seek signs, signs are, are never enough. But you notice that he uses the word Beelzebul. It's not really for our, our Bible study today, but just a point of interest. Beelzebul. And uh, in that language, that means the Lord of dung or the Lord of flies. Now, the Philistines had a god whose name was Beelzebub. And uh, his name means the Lord of the house. But Jewish people are taught in the Ten Commandments that you don't even take the name of another god on your lips. So they would never say Beelzebub. They would change the name a little bit and also kind of mocking uh, the Philistine god. So they called it Beelzebul, the Lord of Dung or the Lord of Flies as opposed to the Lord of the House. Probably didn't change your your, uh, life, but uh, hopefully that was at least interesting. So Verse 17, he says, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and and notice Jesus also doesn't call it Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. They will be your judges. So Jesus points out the absurdity 
of uh, saying that Satan would cast out Satan, but it's also important to know that Jesus says, who do your sons cast them out by? How do they do that? And the, uh, one of the things that, that it's important to understand is that the Jewish people practiced exorcisms. And uh, for them, it meant a great deal of ritual, uh, all different types of practices in order to cast them out. But Jesus says in verse 20, he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When it says the finger of God, the idea is that it's effortlessly, it's like a flicking, just, you know, get out of here. There's no wrestling. So it, there's no uh, wrestling with the demons. There's no ceremony. There, there's no, all, all of these things that you see in exorcism, it's just the, the, the flicking out. And the idea there is just that Satan is not the counterpart of God. God is so infinitely powerful beyond Satan that uh, it doesn't require all of those things that sometimes we see when it's, when it's done in the power of God. So it's at that point, we went through all that, to come to a principle. And uh, this is a very painful principle that, that I'm going to share today. And, and as we share this, there's two sides. First of all, there's the side of how it's commonly, commonly taught how we deal with Satan. On the other hand, it's a principle of how Satan deals with us. As I get into this, I, I want you to know that there's, there's not in, in, in any way this desire to heap guilt in any way, if, if we see ourselves in this picture. But it's one of those things that we need to realize so that, that we can deal with it and we can go forward. And so, so just, just know that getting into it. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. And uh, it says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. And I've underlined all, all those little, you know, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed, or however your Bible says it. Um, so the picture here is a man, and I'm going to say the, the, the head of the household, and he's guarding his house. And this is a spiritual principle, and uh, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. But there in your outline where it says fully armed, it means to equip fully with, with armor. If, if you were telling the story in that day, it would be, you, you're, you would envision a man fully armed. So say, let's say there's a common robber coming down the street, and he has a pocket knife, and he's looking for somebody's house that he can break into. So he comes down the street, and he comes to, to your house, and Dad, you're there, and uh, you're standing in the doorway, and he can see that you're noticeably strong, and uh, you're, you're, you have armor on, you have a shield, and, and you have a breastplate, and all of those things. Not only that, you have a very large sword, and uh, you also have a shorter sword for more close combat. So as he comes down the street, and he sees you in the door, he's going to say, you know what, this is probably not the house I should try to get into. So he's going to move down the street. Now, if Jesus were telling that story today, he might use a, very, a little bit different verbiage. He might say, you know, he comes down the street, sees you there holding your AR-15 and your 45, you know, that sort of thing. But the idea, so, um, so I, I've put that, so the idea is the strong man who's guarding his house. Now I've put that verse, verse 21, on your outline from the New King James Version, and uh, we're going to just highlight a few things. When a strong man, that's the idea, fully armed, he's strong and he's armed guards his own palace uh, or house, his goods are in peace. And I've underlined that. So the New King James would translate that word as peace. My translation uh, translates that as undisturbed. And if you have the NIV translation, it translates that word as safe, as safe. 
And that word peace there in the New King James or undisturbed or safe just means peace and by implication prosperity. So the idea is that when the strong man is there, and this is a spiritual principle, as he's fully armed, he's strong, he's guarding, what's in his house is safe and it's at peace. And so Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he's going to tell the same story, but he's going to add a few details. So I put that there on your outline. And uh, if you're the dad in your family, then uh, this pertains to you. Moms, if you're a single mom, then this pertains to you, whoever it is who's that spiritual authority, the spiritual head in the house. So when Matthew tells the story, he says it like this. Uh, same story, same day, same demon cast out. And Jesus says, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house, and you see that Greek word there, and carry off his property, and you see the Greek word there, unless he first binds, underline that first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder, and I've underlined plunder his house. So there, there's a few things here that we need to understand to get the flavor of what's going on. First of all, the word house there, oikia, and I've, I put that there in a little paragraph, means a residence and abode, but I want you to underline where it says, by implication, a family. Does everybody see that? That's where you say yes. Okay, by implication, a family. So you could say a strong man's family. That word, interesting, with a little bit different tense, Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, deacons must have only one wife and be good leaders of their children and their own families. And the word there is oikos. Does everybody see that? So it's the same, same, same word, just a little bit different tense. It refers to family. So what I want you to do in that verse, and we put it on the screen, how can anyone enter the strong man's house? And we could literally say the word family because it's translated that way at the first time and there in the very last line, put the word family, write that in. And then another thing that we see, he says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property? Now that word property is very interesting Skiuos, uh, hopefully I pronounced that right, there on your outline, means a vessel, but I, I want you to underline where it says specifically a wife as contributing to the usefulness of the husband. And uh, it can also mean good stuff or vessel, but it, it's something very, very precious. You know, your, your family is very, very precious. So I want you where it says um, there, so how can anyone enter a strong man's house or family and carry off his property? I want you to write precious possessions. And again, it means specifically a wife is contributing to the usefulness of her husband. So um, in, in my family, I have uh, Cheryl and I, we've been married now for, for 20 years, and we have these 12 precious possessions in our home. So in order for the enemy to come into my home and wreak havoc on my family, it says there, he says he first must bind the strong man. And it first binds the strong man. And again, there's that word bind, which is deo, just means to bind. And we saw that with the lady who was bent over. It's the same word. So he has to bind up the strong man in order for him to have the freedom to come into the house and wreak havoc. So let me just read that, that little passage again uh, with, our, with our words. It says, so how can, a man, how can anyone enter the strong man's family and carry off his precious possessions unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his family? Because that's what that word means. It means family. Make sense so far? So first, the enemy, in order to get in, 
has to bind up the strong man, the, the spiritual leader of the family, in such a way that would make us spiritually ineffective. And spiritually speaking, before that demonic entity can get in and, and wreak havoc in our families, he has to somehow first bind up that strong man. And then it says he will then carry away the plunder, and that's the, all the possessions in the man's house, referring not to your couch, not to your TV, but to your precious possessions that your, your family. And this is the person who can provide materially for their, their family wonderfully, but they, they cannot stop their daughter from listening to that voice that tells her to run after this wrong relationship, that wrong relationship, ultimately winding up in in very, very uh, bad situations. This is the one who can provide materially for their family, but but somehow can't have their child stop listening to that voice that says to cut themselves. Does that make sense? In order to get in, the strong man has to be bound up. It's the one who can provide materially for their family, but, but they can't somehow lift that, that depressive oppression from their spouse. Somehow, in order for the enemy to get in, he's had to first bind the strong man. So this is a principle of how Satan wants to deal with me and how he wants to deal with us. He wants to get me and those of us who would be the, the leaders of our house, he wants to get us bound up in a way that causes us to be spiritually ineffective so that our prayers aren't really having an effect so that he can come in and carry off our precious possessions, which is our family. But first, he has to get us bound in some way. Back to Luke. Now, in Luke's gospel, it says, chapter 11, verse 21, he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. So here again you have the, the house, is the, the family, same word there, his possessions, those precious possessions, slightly different word here. Uh, but what we find is that when this strong man is fully armed, guarding his house, his possessions are undisturbed, they are safe, they are at peace. And in our family, when we, we sense that there's not that peace in the house, we begin to look for what's happening that's allowing that to come, come into our house. So if the strong man is to be overpowered in order for that entity to come in, he has to be bound. Verse 22, he says, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away, and I've underlined this, from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder, distributes his, his plunder. So Matthew tells us that he has to be bound up. Here we see to be overpowered in Luke's gospel, bound up in a way that makes us spiritually ineffective. And when the enemy comes in, he removes the armor. That is everything that, that we've been trusting in. And it's no longer working. It's, it's no longer working. And then the result, it says, is that his precious his precious things uh, are, are distributed. He distributes his plunder. We'll talk about that. And so go ahead and write this down there in your outline. From Matthew, when you get it, says once bound, and that's what it says in Matthew 12, my armor is 
removed, and that's the word there when Luke tells the story, and that makes me ineffective. What I've trusted in is no longer working. Uh, no, I'm, I'm ineffective spiritually to protect my family. So Satan wants to bind me in a way that I'm no longer free. And here, here's how he does it. And I'll, I'll just give a couple of examples. You're on the internet and something says, hey, look over here. And we go over there and we, it's just one time. And what we don't realize is that somehow in the spiritual realm, it's like a chain has just gone around us. We're not really bound, but then we hear that voice again and we go and we look and that chain comes around again and again and again. And uh, after a while, what we find is we've now been bound by that chain and we are no longer effective to now protect spiritually our family. So that, that's one way that it can happen. Uh, an inappropriate relationship. You meet somebody and uh, they're nice, you know, you connect with them, you great conversation, you know you shouldn't, but you say, well, well, you know, you start having longer conversations and you don't see that chain being wrapped around. You want to have lunch and you know you shouldn't, but you do, and there's that chain once again wrapped around and one day something happens and you realize now you're bound and now you're caught and it makes you spiritually ineffective on behalf of your family. We see this in addictions. Most people aren't addicted the first time they try something. Here at Calvary, we do not believe that it's wrong to have a glass of wine, a drink, or something like that. We do believe that it's wrong to be a drunk. It's wrong to be addicted. But here's what happens. Over time, uh, we, we progress, and if we're not careful, and there's some things you know, that are just illegal and never touch, but what can happen is over time, you see that chain going around and around. We don't see the chain going around and around, but what we find is there comes a point where now we're bound. We're bound by something, and now we're ineffective spiritually in order to be there for our family. Some, some of us are bound by pride. There's a number of things that we can be bound by. But when I'm bound, that's when the enemy is able to come in to my household, my family. And there's two results that he tells us here. There's probably more, but these are the two big ones. First of all, my family can be plundered. My family can be plundered. There's a a verse in Exodus, and it says, you shall not bow down. This is in the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, depending on your translation, the Hebrew is very nimble. One of the things about the Hebrew words is some of those words can have 50 different meanings. So uh, this will be translated slightly different in, in every translation. But what it's saying here is that the sins of the parents are passed on to the next generation, which is true. You know, alcoholic or addictive families tend to produce children who are addicted. They're not always addicted in the same way, uh, but, but it just t- tends to be passed on. And I wanted uh, to give an illustration of this. I want you to make, hold your place here in Luke, but I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now with your pen in hand, this has got to go real fast. Genesis 12. This is a story... Our story begins with Abraham and Sarah. They're the first Jewish people, the father of faith. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord, but he's got this issue in his life. Genesis 12. Everybody there? Okay. So we're going to pick it up, and it says, I'll read it in verse 11, and it says, it came about 
when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see, I know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will kill me. Uh, they will say, this is, a beautiful, uh, this is his wife, and they will kill me. They'll let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and I may live on account of you. Now, what this is in this first generation, this is a half lie told to somebody outside the family. Sarai really is his half-sister, so that part is kind of true, but, but she's also his wife. So it's a half-lie, but it's outside the family. Now, next to verse uh, 13, I want you to write Genesis 20, verse 12. Genesis 20, verse 12, and then flip over uh, to the right. Try to go as fast as you can so we don't run out of time. Genesis 20, verse 12. Uh, sorry, Genesis 20, verse 2. And I'm going to start in verse 1, and it says, Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of his wife, she is my, what's it say? Sister. Now here's the thing. What we see here, this is the second time that Abraham does this. It's a half lie. It's outside the family. Um, but it's a pattern. It's a pattern in Abraham's life. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord. But when his back is against the wall, there's this slight dishonesty. And he never deals with it. So Abraham's going to have a child. So next to verse 2, I want you to write Genesis 26, verse 6. Genesis 26, verse 6. And we'll actually read 6 and 7. So we're going to go to Genesis 26. So there's Abraham, Isaac, And uh, so the next generation here, verse 6, everybody there? So it says, now Isaac lived in Gerar. Now that's Abraham's son. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Now where did he learn that? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. This is no longer a half lie outside of the family. This is now a whole lie outside of the family because it's not a sister, it's his wife. Well, there's another generation First generation, half lie outside the family. Second generation, full lie outside the, gener- outside the family. Next to verse 7, I want you to write 27, 18 through 20. 27, 18 through 20. We're going to go to uh, the next chapter, 27. Abraham, Isaac, and he, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And, uh, and so notice what happens, and you can read the whole story later. It says, he came to his father and said, my father... And he said, here I am. And uh, Isaac says, well, who are you, my son? Jacob, underline that, said to his father, I am, what's it say? Esau. So now what we see, it was never dealt with in generation one, generation two. So now generation three, it's a little bit bigger. So now it's not a half lie outside. It's not a whole lie outside. It's a whole lie on the inside of the family. And now one is cheating the other family member using dishonesty. But it's never dealt with in that generation. So there's going to be a next generation. So next to that, I want you to write Genesis 37 and uh, write 28, Genesis 37, 28, and I'll pick it up there, but we're going to look at a couple of other verses. Um, I'm actually going to uh, start uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter, and, uh, and then one day, one of the sons, he sends out the sons to go shepherd the sheep, sends out Joseph, the, the, the son, to go check on the brothers. And in verse 28, it says, uh, let me pick it up in verse 26. It says, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is us for, for us to kill our brother and, and cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
And uh, so verse 28, some Midianite traders pass by and they pulled him up and they sell him. They sell him for 30 shekels or 20 shekels of silver. And then you come to verse 31, what they do, the brothers, now they've sold their brother in slavery. It says, verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, you know, we found this, please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it, that's Jacob, it's my son's tunic, a wild beast has devoured him and and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Would you agree that what wasn't dealt with in one generation gets bigger in the next generation? And if Abraham would have seen what it was going to look like in just a few generations, he might have made some very different decisions along the way. That makes sense? With that, let's go back to Luke, and hopefully uh, you find that at least interesting. But what's taken place in our life is, you know, and, and I'm sure in your life too, is uh, for us, Cheryl and I, we realized that some things were passed on generationally. And so we realized that we did not want to pass some of those things on to the next generation. So we've made a very conscious effort to make sure that we deal with them now so they're not passed on, is, is the idea. So, um, so, and again, that's not to make us feel guilty, it's just so, so we evaluate. So um, the next result that we see is that the family is ultimately plundered, ultimately plundered. We just, we just saw that with Abraham and his family, ultimately. And then verse 22, it says, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied. And in my translation, it says distributes his plunder. So those precious possessions, you want to write this down, are ultimately distributed. distributed. Now, if you have the NIV, it would say that they are divided. The word there in the original language means to give throughout a crowd, to give throughout a crowd. So without being too, too graphic, dads, it's a painful thing to see your daughter distributed, passed around from relationship, bad relationship to bad relationship. It's a painful thing to see your son distributed you know, in, in this problem and that problem, and it just, it's a painful thing to, to see that. For some of us, it's just distributing our kids to every therapist, every, every therapy situation, every program, and nothing seems to work. And it could be that the reason is, is that the source is spiritual. We've never dealt with the spiritual, so all those other things aren't really having the effect that we'd love for them to have. Again, that's not for guilt. It's to say maybe that's something that we should look at. Um, we have to deal with the spiritual issue. So we say, all right, how do I fix it? I want to be strong again. I, I don't want to live in, in this. And no matter where you are, you can become strong again and you can become spiritually effective on behalf of your family. So the past does not have to equal the future. And so how do we do that? Well, um, I would say the first thing that we need to do, and there, this is a very simplified answer to uh, probably a, a much, what's needed is a much larger answer, But I think first of all, we have to recognize the reality and realize what's at stake. Recognize the reality and realize what's at stake. Most people never come to the place where they realize that there might be a spiritual component to the reason our family has been plundered and distributed. And they've never dealt with that. They always deal with it in the the physical realm. When we began our study in in spiritual warfare, we kept coming back to Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul says, here's how it needs to be. Remember, Jesus says, the strong man. Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Satan's goal is to remove all of that. He he can't enter into your family and wreak havoc. Uh, You know, you and I live in a fallen world, so bad things sometimes happen in, in very good families and good people. But if we're speaking spiritually, he can't wreak havoc Uh, while there is that spiritual strong man there who's fully armed. So the admonition that Paul gives is to make sure that you are standing strong, that you're the spiritual leader in your family. And I've come to realize in my life, and certainly you've come to realize in your life that as it relates to this, Satan's not playing. He's not playing. He'll do anything he can do to get you in bondage, to take you down so that he can sweep in, plunder your house, and distribute your possessions. And that's a painful thing, I'm sure, to, to watch. Which is why Peter would say it like this there in your outline. He says, be sober, be vigilant. You can't be casual about this. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That word devour means to consume. He wants to get us caught up so he can consume us. So we have to realize what's at stake. And what's at stake... For many of us, and this is not to heap guilt, but for many of us, much of our lives were distributed and plundered because the previous generation was not a spiritual, in our families, not a spiritually strong uh, generation on our behalf. And so we saw much of our lives plundered. That's not to heap guilt. For, for the most part, our parents didn't know, and I'm sure if they, if they did know, they would have made some different decisions, but we can know, we can know. And even if we didn't know way back then, we can know now. And we can become strong now and our, our prayers can begin to have a very serious effect in the positive on behalf of our family. But what's at stake? Our families are at stake. Our lives are at stake. And Satan's not playing. And we have to realize that if we're going to go any further. Then the second thing that I would say would be that we need to get accountable. And I, I want to I talk about this just for a minute, what that means and, and why I do things a certain way. And I... Um, um, it, it says there in James, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. But then it says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now when it says uh, healed, that means to be made whole again. So whatever it is that you're in bondage with, whatever it is, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, what is that? Well, that would be somebody who's not currently struggling with the same thing that you're struggling. You know, if your thing is drinking and you turn, you're at the bar and, you know, you're smashed and you turn to the guy next to you and say, you know, we need to quit drinking. He says, I know we do. You hold me accountable. It's probably not going to work, okay? It's, it's not going to, can I get a witness there? No, don't, don't even raise your hand. <laughs> but, but a righteous man, you've got to go somewhere where somebody is not struggling, where they can, because they are spiritually strong, they can pray for you. And the effect, the, the, as it says, um, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And it's through that prayer that can at least release that spiritual bondage so that you can begin the process of being made whole. Uh, Another thing that it says there in in, uh, Paul's letter to the Hebrew believers, he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And it's, it's the same 
Same concept, just a, a different way of saying it. If you're all tangled up, you cannot run effectively. So we have to unload that, that which is binding us up. And, and so this needs to happen, I would say, and I, I'm not sure of the, the right word to say it. I wanted to say a small group, but it's not always a small group. But it needs to be a spiritual group, and, and the reason it needs to be a spiritual group because the world does not understand the spiritual side of the things that bind us up. So they can't pray for us to have those bondages released. Uh, they, can do, they can hold accountable and things of that nature, but they don't understand that, that, that side where there's a spiritual entity that's coming in to bind you up to, to wreak havoc in your family. So I would say that that needs to be in a, in a group of, of spiritually minded people who are also on the path. I would also say it needs to be in an ongoing group, and here's why. When we have studied spiritual warfare, it's always called warfare. Uh, it's called a wrestling. It's never called a skirmish. You know, a skirmish is different than, than the warfare. A skirmish is something you, you beat that, you know, you're in that firefight, you beat that, and you move on. And that's, that's good, but this is a warfare. This is a warfare. And so because it's a warfare, it's not something to where we'll have an altar call and we'll say, who wants to be set free today? And then we all have this emotional experience and we say, okay, we are now free. And you go. And two hours later, you're, you're back at it. And the reason being is it's a warfare. It's not a skirmish. It's not a quick thing. So that freedom needs to come in the context of other believers who are in that battle with you. Not that they are struggling with the same thing. They have struggled with it, but right now they are spiritually free so they can be strong on your behalf to release you spiritually. Um, We're always happy to pray with somebody, but but the greatest results will come as you are with other believers and uh, they are holding you accountable and they're helping you to go forward because it is going to be a warfare. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Now back to Luke, we're going to go to the next verse, which is verse 23. Jesus takes it a step further, and here's the reality. He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And and what this means, and you want to write this down, that means in the area of spiritual warfare, no one is neutral. You're either all in, or it doesn't matter. Because you're either with him in the battle, going forward, or it really doesn't matter. Because you, there is no victory for the casual following. And that's what Jesus says. So we have to ask ourselves, am I fully in? And then he says in verse 24, and I'm going to read verse 24 through 26. He says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And that's the human. And, and when it, it comes and finds it swept away, swept and put in order, then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. It's not just about getting clean and getting rid of it. Uh, unless we are filled, when that thing comes back, and he finds everything clean and swept but not filled, it just moves back in. So that means, and you want to write this down, uh, I need to fill my life with the things of God. Many people will get clean but not filled. And it's just a matter of time before it moves back in. Does that make sense? 
And so this battle in order to be one is going to require an all-out commitment saying, I am fully in. Now with that, um, we are out of time. And so I'm going to leave that there. And uh, there's another verse in your outline. You can read that later on. If you're the spiritual leader in your family, it is vitally important that you make the decision that you're going to be spiritually strong on behalf of your family. Because if we're not, as we read this, we're opening up the opportunity for another entity to come into our family and uh, making us powerless as we watch our family plundered and distributed. This is not God's plan for you, and it's not for you. So you want to make sure that you are all in in this battle as we go forward. Again, we're out of time. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, a very sobering principle today and one that's very uncomfortable. And yet, Lord, we have to deal with this in order to go forward. And I know for many of us, we've tried everything and nothing, nothing has worked. And not realizing that like the lady that was bent over and the man who was healed, that in those cases there was a spiritual entity that was causing the problem and until that was dealt with, there was no freedom. And then like the man who's bound up and um, ultimately the enemy can come in and plunder. We don't want that. It's not, not who we're called to be. And it's not what we want to see in the lives of our children. And many of us have experienced that, not because our parents were evil. They just didn't know. But now we can know. And and we can stop it right here as we go forward. So today, Father, we commit to being all in, not just casually, but all in and filling our lives with the things of God. And as we do that, we take those steps, we get into those places, those spiritual communities that understand the spiritual nature of what's going on in the unseen. Father, I pray that, that for many of us, we would operate then in freedom and then effectiveness as we stand guard and pray for our children and our families so that our testimony wouldn't be that they were plundered and distributed, but Lord, they were safe, undisturbed, and at peace. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.